you're not talking to mute yourselves and please uh, use the um, the chat to uh, ask me either in the group chat or in the personal chat uh, to ask me questions uh, or or ask the group questions because uh, I would be happy to answer any questions. When do you go to like? No, there's no sound. Betty, just click on your picture in the top right corner. There's three dots, and you can just mute it there. Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Oh, you're so cute. So, um, just to go back to the COVID-19 two points that I wanted to make. Uh, one is that, as far as we can tell, and this is not hardcore science. This is not going to the New England next week. We see no evidence that Parkinson's plays a role in COVID-19 severity. Uh, the range of people that had COVID-19 in our group is that a wife with Parkinson's, whose husband had Parkinson's, uh, COVID, he had significant symptoms and she was just tested positive with nothing. She later on converted to serology. Uh, the other factors that affect other people without Parkinson's, which are basically age and gender, uh, are playing a role in Parkinson's as well. So both their age and Parkinson uh, is a risk factor. So uh, switching from the morbid uh, COVID-19, and la one last point that I will say before I let COVID-19 go, is that uh, COVID-19, there was a lot of extensive research in Parkinson's about usage of telemedicine. It's a little bit less relevant to people where you live, where it may be a drag, but within a, a car ride, you can get to five or six centers of excellence treating Parkinson's disease. But people who live in the middle of the country and there are most of the people in, with Parkinson's in this country are not treated by movement disorder specialists. They're treated by general practitioners, not even neurologists. So if the change in the perception of telemedicine will allow these people access to better or more specialized care by seeing at least a neurologist, if not a movement disorder specialist, that will be one outcome that will be a positive outcome of the COVID-19 uh, pandemic. Uh, if you're not using telemedicine, I encourage you to use it to communicate with your doctors because uh, this is really a great way of remembering that you do have a support system, even uh, if it's not clearly obvious when you're uh, many times alone at home. So now I'm gonna to switch to the positive uh, spin to what I really like, and that's the uh, uh, areas of research in Parkinson's disease. And um, again, I don't want to focus on one specific topic because uh, I think the crowd is very diverse and they want people to uh, know about everything that is going on. And um, the three areas of Parkinson's research I would divide into three major topics of fields of uh, progression. One is what we call disease-modifying agents. The definition of disease-modifying agents is actually very tricky. And the idea is, in this disease, let's say like headache, you will say that if someone has a headache from a tumor, um, the tumor is disease-modifying, taking Tylenol is um, uh, helping the symptoms. With Parkinson's, it doesn't really work this way because carbidopa levodopa not only helps the symptoms, but it also pro prolongs life for people with Parkinson's significantly. So uh, what's the definition of disease modification is a little bit tricky by the FDA, but the idea is any drugs that would slow down the natural progression of Parkinson's disease. And the disease-modifying agents are, there's quite a few studies. 
Unfortunately, in 2019, two studies of disease-modifying agents turned out to be negative, but there were large studies well-funded. One is for a derivative of the uric acid because of data on uric acid being a little low in people with Parkinson's. The other is on a calcium channel blocker, a hypertension drug that turned out to be negative. And uh, the disease-modifying agents, with very few exceptions, that if you're curious, I will tell you about, recruit people that are called medication naive. So the problem is if you want to show that the drug slows down Parkinson's, uh, you want to see how can you, um, how can you check that it actually slowed down Parkinson's. Now, if someone is taking carbidopolivodopa and they do well when they take the drug, how do you know that a week later, when they didn't take the drug, that the disease progressed and it's just that they didn't take the drug that day? So in order to remove that bias, most of the studies that look at disease-modifying agents um, use what we call medication-naive people, people who are not taking dopaminergic drugs. And you can immediately understand that the major limitation of the studies is that it recruits only a fraction of the patients with Parkinson's disease, only the people who are medication-naive that are not taking medications. And this is something that absolutely needs to change. It is in the process of changing, and I will talk a little bit about how it can need to change a little bit later. The second type of drug that um, uh, the second type of uh, drug that can be um, um, uh, of, of group of I'm sorry the second type of group of interventions that can be done are treatments for motor fluctuations. Treatments for motor fluctuations are uh, when people have a good response to levodopa, and but the response goes away. And then you need the next dose. And initially you start with three pills a day, three times a day, and then you increase to four times a day, and then five times a day. And then you need to start adding different manipulations to improve the time that feels well, which would be the on stage, to sometimes when people don't feel well, and that will be the off stage. And um, drugs that reduce motor fluctuation are measured by how they reduce the off state. And this is uh, these trials, these clinical trials, and these uh, uh, prog this progress in Parkinson's is relevant to people that have good response to levodopa, but they need their next dose, and that's actually quite common. Um, this is a field. This is the topic that will actually have the most good news to give you about recent trials uh, that um, uh, went well and. Uh, recent FDA approvals for new drugs uh, that may be available. The third group of drug research for Parkinson's disease is treatment for non-motor symptoms. Uh, you probably all watch TV and see the commercials for the psychosis and Parkinson's disease, which it's a good drug and bad commercial. Um, there's not a lot of other drugs for non-motor symptoms, nor Thera for low blood pressure uh, that has been recently approved, but this is another field that needs to be studied specifically for cognitive functioning and for fatigue and Parkinson's disease. Uh, there was a negative nicotine study recently. I want to ask everyone before I next move to the next slide, if you can please mute yourselves because there's a, a back sound and I don't know if it bothers the other people when I talk, if not, it's okay, but uh, please mute yourself if you haven't. So um, the disease modifying agents that I think are most exciting that are currently being studied can be divided to three different groups. One is immune therapy. And immune therapy is using the immune system in order to fight Parkinson's disease. 
Now, if this looked weird three months ago, it now makes a lot more sense. We see with COVID-19 that the immune system is very weird. People who have a very good immune system may not have COVID. People who have too good of an immune system can develop an autoimmune disorder after COVID is order, over. So the immune system corrects a lot of things and is very important in a lot of uh, actions in our body. Also, a few of the genes that have been linked to Parkinson's are actually uh, related to the immune system. So they argue that the immune system has an important factor in Parkinson's disease. For uh, when if people pass away and donate their brain for Parkinson's research, we see that there's immune cells, inflammatory cells in the areas affected by Parkinson's. Is this a good response that needs to be enhanced of the immune system fighting Parkinson's? Or is this a bad response that is aggravating the disease and needs to be treated? That's something that um, research is working on. Just uh, at uh, Columbia, or, or there's at least two studies, uh, one by Biogen, one by Merck. There's a third that is gonna start by AbbVie of giving antibodies as an infusion uh, to people with Parkinson's to see whether infusion of antibodies against alpha-synuclein would activate the immune system and get the immune system to get rid of Parkinson's changes in the brain. Similar studies have been done in Alzheimer's with conflicting results. Uh, with Alzheimer's, the protein that is deposited in Alzheimer's is also deposited in blood vessels, so it caused a lot of inflammation. Now that they've learned how to overcome it, um, the problem, there's one drug of Biogen that uh, the FDA is working on approval for COVID-19, early 2019 Biogen, dry, uh, Biogen uh, stock uh, went down and then they announced it and then later on the year went up. So it's still very unclear, but the mechanism of, of immune system activation is very interesting and very promising. The second type of uh, research that I think is very uh, promising and very exciting is precision medicine. And that is, let's stop treating Parkinson's as one disease and just take all comers to the study. Let's recruit only the people that, are, um, that have a biology that is relevant to our trial into this clinical trial. A few of you are participants in the MOVE-SPD study, which is targeting people, or the targeting the pathway of GBA, a gene linked to Parkinson's. And uh, of course, people with GBA mutations are the first ones that would benefit from it. Whether people without mutations benefit from it in the future, that will be something that the drug company will have to test. Similar to GBA, there are now two clinical trials for LARC2, another gene linked to Parkinson's. One of them is by Denali Therapeutics. They actually have two different trials, or two different trials, one in Europe, in um, the Netherlands, Belgium, and UK, and one in the United States. Uh, Penn was the closest site. The second study is actually very interesting in my eyes, is ran by Biogen, is uh, for oligonucleotide, uh, for antisense oligonucleotides. The reason why it's very interesting is because the same company that is working with Biogen got FDA approval to treat uh, babies and children with uh, infant onset of Lou Gehrig's disease, which is called spinal muscular atrophy, and the drug is working. The kids don't die. So the mechanism of, of shutting down an, a gene with antisense oligonucleotides that are injected into the spinal fluid has worked in another disease, and we're very hopeful that Parkinson's will be next. Parkinson's is not unique. The same drugs that are based on antisense oligonucleotides are tried in other diseases, including, for example, Huntington's disease. This has completely changed the field 
Previously, people didn't want to know if they have Huntington's or not, and now they do because the trial looks promising. The third type of disease-modifying agents is repurposing drugs, and this is like a cheap way of doing it. Instead of inventing a new drug and looking for a new mechanism, let's see if a drug from another disease can help Parkinson's. And we have multiple examples for it that some of you participated in those trials as well. Uh, for example, uh, a cancer drug, nilotinib, has been tried for Parkinson's. The University of Georgetown reported excellent results. The Michael J. Fox funded study, not so much. Uh, for diabetes, GLP-1 uh, inhibitors of glucagon-like protein uh, have shown some promising studies. Zyrtepine study for hypertension has been tried. And now the researchers from Harvard are also advocating maybe better agonists, um, inhalers for asthma uh, for the treatment of Parkinson's. Much easier with regards to side effect profile. You know what to look for much cheaper. Sometimes the fact it's cheaper is actually more difficult because it's hard to find someone who would um, fund it. For example, uh, GBA, the gene linked to Parkinson's, one of the drugs that can make it work better is a cough drug, is a, is a mucolytic, is something that helps cough that is available over the counter, a counter in Europe. It's impossible to do a clinical trial because it's hard to find someone that will fund it. The British have reported a study of 14 people. The, for treatment of, of motor fluctuations, I'm not talking anymore about concepts and about genes and about immune therapy. I'm talking about really up, updates from 2020 of quite a few drugs that got approval. More recently, the, in the United States, if a recent drug is approved or costly, they're using a specialty pharmacy. So I made a list of drugs that are either in specialty pharmacy or really newly diagnosed, newly uh, approved. The first is a dopamine agonist, uh, that's apomorphine. Apomorphine is a great dopamine agonist. Uh, it works uh, very quickly. People uh, that can be in complete off state get an injection, yawn, and start walking. The problem is that it makes people throw up, so you need to give an antiemetic when you give the drug, and nobody likes injections. So uh, the new drug is sublingual film. It's a drug under the tongue that can be taken when someone is in the off state. Uh, a second uh, drug that is uh, recently, not that recently, but still recently approved is in Brija. It's inhaled levodopa. Uh, inhaled levodopa requires a little bit of training, but for people who have sudden off state and they are afraid of going out of the house because they don't want to get an off state where the medications don't work in the, in the restaurant, in Brija would be an excellent option, option for them if it works. Also, there are some people where L-DOPA interacts with food, and if you want to get L-DOPA into your body without going through the gut, inhalation of it is a reasonable thing. For people who have a problem inhaling, the drug can be a challenge. Uh, in Bridge, just recently got uh, approved by the DOD, so if any of you are eligible for DO for veterans, um, the VA, if any of you is eligible for VA benefits, it's now, uh, uh, under formulary or some kind of formulary there, which is a huge relief because it's an expensive drug. There are clinical trials for long-acting levodopa, which so would be a drug that works like slow-release Cinemet or like Ritari, but hopefully better, that you can really take once or twice a day without the motor fluctuations. Uh, a fourth drug that was just approved, we there barely had the opportunity to try it, is this Vaseline. This is a denosine to antagonist. It's a wonderful mechanism. People saw that people who drink more caffeine are of lower risk for Parkinson's. So they tried to work on the mechanism of caffeine 
which is blocking the adenosine to antagonist receptor. So the adenosine to receptor, so adenosine to antagonists. This drug is a mild drug. Carol Waters, the Dallas Clinical Trials at Columbia said that the patients who participated in the study had no side, significant side effects. I don't expect it to do miracles, but for people who have fluctuations and want to postpone thinking about deep brain stimulation or not deep brain stimulation candidates, it may be an option. Safinamide or Zodago is an MAOB inhibitor. So just before I go to the last two points in the slide, uh, L-DOPA is a drug that converted to dopamine in the brain. Instead of bringing more dopa to the brain to convert to dopamine, we can slow down the mechanism of the brain to, to get rid of dopamine. And dopamine can be reduced in the brain by two enzymes, either MAO, monoamine oxidase, or by COMS. So both enzymes have drugs that block them that would work for Parkinson's. They elevate dopamine by blocking the, the, the natural degradation of it. New MAOB inhibitor would be safinamide. Old ones that some of you may use is uh, selegiline or risagiline. And uh, a new COMT inhibitor has uh, just been approved in April. It's really like two drugs in two months uh, the, uh, that have been approved by the FDA. It really is a exciting times for Parkinson's. This is a COMT inhibitor. Uh, people that use Stelevo use the regular, the more older fashioned COMT inhibitors, uh, COMTAN. Uh, this advantage of the drug here is that it has less side effects and taken once daily. Uh, Non-interventional studies that I just want to briefly mention. Uh, as I said, we have major problem with uh, drug control. We have major problem with um, disease modifying agents, that it's hard to recruit patients. You need people who are newly diagnosed, are not on medications yet, they're overwhelmed by the diagnosis of Parkinson's, and instead of telling them go home and relax, you, you hit them with clinical trials of drugs that we don't know if they work or not. We must be able to recruit people at different stages of Parkinson's for disease-modifying agents. For this, we need better data to see if Parkinson's progressed or not, just the exam, than just the exam the UPDRS exam that we do when people come into clinic. And wearable devices uh, is an exploding technology that is still yet to mount to changing the field of Parkinson's. So all the drugs that I showed in the previous slide that got FDA approval, got the approval by the very old fashioned mechanism of diaries. You keep a diary of how much time you were on, how much time you were off, how much time you had dyskinesia, and if these diaries work, the drug is approved. That is unbelievable. I cannot keep a diary of what I ate every day. So to think that people were able to provide that amount of information in a way to show that the drug works is amazing. My guess is that once wearable are used, we'll see that more interventions that were previously didn't have sufficient data will prove to be useful or harmful. The other thing uh, that uh, we have non-interventional studies is collecting blood draws to understand what is the role of the immune system in Parkinson's. Um, uh, there are specific cells in the immune system that are called T cells. They're very important. They're actually the target of HIV. HIV infects T cells. And recently it's been replicated that the people with Parkinson's have T cells, those important immune cells that recognize the protein in the brain of a synuclein. Now, again, we don't know if the fact they recognize alpha synuclein is good because they help slow down Parkinson's by getting rid of it, or it's bad if by recognizing the alpha synuclein, they attack those cells 
and, uh, and enhance progression. So uh, both, in, uh, uh, both uh, immune, the, the immune system is studied in non-interventional studies and uh, imaging um, and biomarker studies are very important. I don't I remember that at least last time there was one person who participated in the Michael J. Fox funded PPMI study that has received a significant amount of funding and is going to a next stage where the next stage that they think of is that instead of just uh, slowing down Parkinson's, let's prevent it. How do we prevent it? Let's recruit to this observational study people at risk for Parkinson's. Who's gonna be at risk for Parkinson's? Either people with genetic mutations like the ones I mentioned in GBA and LARC2, or people with um, uh, uh, premotor symptoms of Parkinson's like people who, have, who act out or their dreams, REM sleep behavior disorder, who have high risk for Parkinson's, let's recruit them into this observational study. And uh, of course, the last non-interventional study that I wanted to mention to tie the loop with the talk that I gave you last time is PD gene. So if we want to do precision medicine for Parkinson's, if we want to tailor the treatment per person, we have to have people know their genotype. If people don't know if they're GBA or LARC2 mutation carriers, how will they participate in a clinical trial for just GBA or LARC, just LARC2? or just alpha synuclein. So when I met you last time, it was in the making, it was futuristic. Now this study, uh, the pilot study had to stop because of COVID-19, but within a few months we recruited 300 people. So including people from the group, you come in, or now we'll, as of July, we'll do it all by telemedicine, thanks to COVID-19. Um, you provide, uh, you get a neurological exam, you provide, ask a family history questionnaire, and uh, you provide a DNA sample. Previously, it was a blood drawing clinic. In the future, it's going to be saliva sample in a bucket. And uh, you ship it to the, you get a, you set, you FedEx it uh, through the grant to the genetic lab. And you get results if you're a carrier of uh, mutations in all the genes that we think are important in Parkinson's disease. Uh, the advantage of it is that people can then uh, decide if they want to join clinical trials or not. Uh, and the idea, the idea behind it is to basically make it accessible so each one of you can decide whether they want to do it or not. And I wanted to finish with this because I wanted to show you that there is progress. Because in the last time I talked, PDG was a theory. Now it's an actively ongoing trial that was stopped in March abruptly by the IRB asking us to stop recruiting people. And ever since we've been working on a safe protocol of how to recruit people at home, and we are very hopeful that by July, we'll be able to offer that. And of course, Columbia is a site. But you don't need Columbia to be a site because it's gonna be virtual. So you can be recruited through Penn uh, from, your from your home uh, if you wish to do so. So I spoke very quickly because I speak fast and I um, couldn't be stopped for questions because there's no way to ask me questions. So I think this will be a great time to put the questions in, uh, in the, um, in the chat room. And uh, if the chat doesn't work for everyone, uh, uh, if the chat doesn't work for everyone, you can also speak out loud when I stop reading the questions from the chat. I will take a deep breath and then I'll read the questions from the chat. So the first question is from Chuck is, what do you think about teresosin and gabapentin? So two different questions, teresosin, uh, is a drug that, um, again, it's a hypertension drug that we thought would work. Uh, I think that the data aren't quite there. 
um, pterosotin can drop the blood pressure significantly. So it's much more strongly than isradicine. And uh, people are using it for benign prostatic hyperplasia. So people can use it. Um, I think the data is way far too in advanced for clinical trials. So they need to do a little bit more. It's just from an animal model. But the, again, the concept of taking a drug, pterosotin is a hypertension or benign prostatic hyperplasia, prostate drug, and converting to Parkinson's is very appealing because you know the side effects. I am concerned about the side effect of low blood pressure because people with Parkinson's tend to have low blood pressure, something that is good in COVID times, but not good when you want pterosotin. About gabapentin, gabapentin is a tricky drug. It, has, it can cause somnolence. I'm not loving gabapentin. There isn't sufficient data to recommend using it. Uh, the next question is, um, um, have you ever used or heard about octreotide injections um, for profound hypertension in Parkinson's disease? So I have not uh, used the drug. Uh, octreotide injections are something that is available. Um, I think that for profound hypertension, if Northera, Mydodrine, and Fluorinef do not work, DDAVP is also an option. Um, so I don't want to say more than that. It's, that's, I don't have an experience with it. And so what are your thoughts about alpha-synuclein vaccine past phase one in Austria? So the trials that we're doing at Columbia University are phase two. So they also passed phase one. So I think the alpha-synuclein vaccine or the activating the immune system against alpha-synuclein is very interesting. Whether it will show significant promise or not, we have to clinically trial, study it. But um, if someone told me that they are interested in participating in alpha-synuclein clinical trial, I would say that's a cool mechanism. I would want to know the results. So when we said about vaccines, I would just want to say that there's two type of the vaccines. There is a passive vaccine and active vaccine. What's an active vaccine? Active vaccines is like when you get it for the measles or what people want to do for COVID. And that's giving you, injecting you a protein that will make your immune system act to it and then uh, make you immune to measles. Um, that would be maybe injecting some pathological alpha-synuclein into your skin, making your immune system react to it, and in its reaction, fight the alpha-synuclein you have in the brain. Passive vaccine is when you're not, in, uh, when you're taking antibodies that were produced by someone else, and you're giving that to the person to fight alpha-synuclein. So the antibodies in the clinical trials we do were produced in the lab and they're infused, so they are going to fight the alpha-synuclein in the brain, maybe taking along the other, parking, other immune system um, uh, cells or immune system, system with them. In a way, when people with COVID-19 receive plasma from people who recovered from COVID-19, that's passive immunization. They basically get the antibodies that were produced by someone that fought and won the battle against COVID-19 and inject it to the other people to have them maybe activate their immune system this way. It works for some diseases, rabies. It doesn't work for other diseases. So um, in uh, West Nile disease, this mechanism didn't work. Um, 
why is the gold standard treatment a drug developed in the 60s when so much money has been spent and advancement in science has uh, taken place? Uh, that's a humbling question. Um, I, when COVID allows me, but also when it doesn't, I do my best so we can advance to the next stage. Um, I think that symptomatically it will be very hard to, bat, uh, to be better than DOPA. Um, the, uh, because DOPA is very close to the biological dopamine, so it's gonna be very hard to battle DOPA in the symptomatic treatment, which we're really absolutely lacking is disease the change that is drugs that will change the biology of Parkinson's, and um, maybe let me use this question to call for help for everyone. Research for Parkinson's is hurting because of COVID-19. Uh, financially, the foundations are not doing well. The NIH is directing money to COVID-19. It's impossible to bring in patients for blood draws. So whatever you can do to help research, let's do it. Um, uh, it is humbling that it's, uh, you're absolutely right that um, the drug was developed in the 60s and there's still nothing better. Still, we're in a better place compared to ALS and Alzheimer's. They don't even have that. Uh, Lynn is asking, your thoughts about Dr. Kim's work in personalized uh, stem cell treatment. So stem cell treatment is very tricky. And I think that stem cell treatment uh, is going to be uh, an all or none thing. It won't be like Ritari, where some people take it and it works well, and some people take it and it doesn't work for them. Uh, the stem cell treatments have a lot of um, challenges. So just to give you um, a retrospect, probably before any of you developed Parkinson's, I think before any of you developed Parkinson's, two competing sites in, the, in, upper, in New York, Upper West Side and Upper East Side, uh, did clinical trials of fetal transplants with Parkinson's. What they showed is that the drugs actually work, that the fetal transplant, at the time that it was legitimate to do it, uh, they actually work. Uh, the problem is that they work just like deep brain stimulation or DOPA. They basically, those transplants produce dopamine and the dopamine is replacing the dopamine that is not there. The problem with the transplants that maybe have been improved with technologies since was done a couple of decades ago, is it caused so much dyskinesia that nobody has been doing fetal transplants since. But the major problem that I have with Parkinson's is it's progressive, that it stops being a dopamine problem very like at a certain stage, and it becomes a cognitive problem or it has effects of other parts of the brain. And I haven't heard yet from the people that do the uh, uh, stem cell treatments, how will they solve that issue that the Parkinson's progresses from the substantia nigra in the motor part of the brain to the other parts of the brain. And I would like intervention that would stop that. So the alpha-synuclein antibodies, for example, would stop that because there's alpha-synuclein in the cognitive parts of the brain in people who have cognitive changes. So if there's a way to reduce that, that's exciting to me. So I don't know about the, uh, I don't know what will come out of the stem cells. Uh, I think it's interesting, uh, but that's not where I hedge my bets, but who knows. Um, how do you sign up for the genetic initiative? I think the easiest way if, you're, if you can do this is uh, Amanda Chan that spoke about COVID-19 is on um, the Zoom call. You can personally send it to her, uh, send her information and she'll contact you. She keeps, a, uh, she doesn't just a keep a log of COVID-19, she's also 
is mainly, uh, she wants to be a genetic counselor and she's uh, getting a lot of experience with working on PDG. Uh, so Maria is asking if NPT-088 going to be available for those with PT. And I don't know what's NPT-088 or I'd call it uh, a different name. So if you can tell me what it is, um, I can try to look it up. But um, uh, in the meantime, want to talk about NPT-088? I don't know how to do it. Um, while Maria is telling me a little bit more about NPT-088, let me, uh, let me, I was asked, what's my thoughts about DBS? My thoughts about DBS is that um, it's an amazing intervention for the right people. And the right people are often, the two groups of people who benefit the most from DBS are people who have tremor that Cinemet cannot, Livodopa cannot control, and then it works very well. And then it's actually uh, even more exciting because not only DBS, we now have focused ultrasound. So it's just putting ultrasound that burns the area in the brain rather than poking it. So people that tremor is really the vast majority of their problems. Uh, focused ultrasound is another intervention that I didn't mention. And um, uh, the, but tremor is very, like as much better responsive to DBS than it is to cinematural dopa. The other group of people, and that's the major group of people we refer to DBS, are people that would get a lot of benefit from Parkinson's from Cinemat, but have significant side effects. If the side effects are just, and this is an extreme uh, simplification, but if the side effect is dyskinesia, then they benefit usually from a subthalamus, I'm sorry, from a subthalamus uh, stimulation, STN. If the, um, if the complication from DBS is dystonia, then GPI, globus pallidus part interna, GPI, will be the best uh, target for DBS. But DBS is a whole complete talk. I can say that DBS technology and the electrodes they use are getting better and better, and they're now coming up to technology that you can actually adjust the DBS by phone, so it would save the visits for, uh, and would allow it to do that in, in telemedicine, so the technology is getting amazing uh, by the day. So DBS, very good for the right people. People that got only marginal response to Cinemat are unlikely to get significant, except for tremor, are unlikely to get um, very good response with DBS. Um, let me keep on reading the questions. Um, oh, this is Amanda Chen is giving you her email. And then uh, with an aging population in the US and more PD diagnosis every year, are pharma companies in any competition? Uh, yes, so there's a lot of interest and that's what I was kind of joking when you looked at my, I don't like count consulting to pharma because it's too complicated, but I think it really is necessary because you want to guide pharma to do the right studies and not focus on another slow release cinemat, but rather do something that will be completely meaningful. So you can see from the disclosure, there's a lot of pharma very interested in Parkinson's disease including large names like Biogen and Sanofi and GSK, a lot of interest in Parkinson's disease. Parkinson's is not, a few years ago, Pfizer announced that there's dropping from the Parkinson's field, uh, from, the, from all of the neuro field. There's not shortage of pharma this stage in Parkinson's. I think it's very exciting. Uh, 
some of the Parkinson's precision medicine trials are also um, stirred by uh, Jonathan Silverstein, uh, who uh, is the CEO of uh, Orbimed, and um, he uh, has Parkinson's disease with GBA mutation, and he's funding small pharma to come with clinical trials that are to treat Parkinson's disease uh, precision medicine. So there's a lot of pharma interest in Parkinson's. Uh, there's never enough. Until there's a cure, there's not enough in my eyes. So it's not enough. We need more. Especially that the NIH is uh, discriminating us. They're uh, putting more funding into Alzheimer's than Parkinson's for reasons unclear to me. Uh, let me keep on looking at the questions and see. Um, Oh, so it's another office in nuclear. Uh, I'm sorry, so I didn't know what's NPT88. The, the question about NPT88 is there are a lot of clinical trials focused on alpha synuclein. Um, I am giving a webinar next week for the Movement Disorder Society, and they divided the talks to two half hours. I talk half hour about the genetics, and someone else is going to talk about the different clinical trials for alpha synuclein. So the immune therapies for Parkinson's and the, are all activating alpha, are, are all targeting alpha synuclein. And there's a lot of exercise around that. Thoughts about research on physical therapy exercise for persons with PD. So there's a lot of research in physical therapy for Parkinson's disease. I think that for me, it's very hard to find equipoise. Equipoise is when you're not sure. I am 100% convinced that people that exercise do better. And people that exercise more do better than people who exercise. So. To do exercise versus no exercise, that ship has sailed. I don't think it's ethical to test that. Everybody should exercise as much as they can uh, before getting exhausted and keeping a routine of exercising four times a week at least for an hour or so, highly recommended. The question is what type of exercises? These studies are ongoing. They're very hard to compare. They're never blinded because you always know what is it that you did. So you can blind the evaluator but they're very important. I will just highlight one older uh, exercise uh, trial from the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, it compared Tai Chi to regular physical therapy for balance and showed that Tai Chi is superior. So there's absolutely room for physical therapy uh, uh, trials in Parkinson's disease. Um, so there's, uh, Lynn is asking about non-invasive brain stimulation. And I think non-invasive brain stimulation is very interesting. It's again, like, I, I can't talk about everything. I apologize. So I just uh, took a, like highlighted a few fields. Um, it's very interesting that TMS, uh, transmagnetic stimulation has been shown to work for depression. Uh, the problem is usually availability of the machines. And I think that it's a little bit understudied and uh, if more, so, uh, Alvaro Pasquale-Leon is in Harvard. If more people had access to TMS, there would be more data about its effect. I am all for non-pharmacological interventions if possible. Um, the question about sleep with Parkinson's, uh, I uh, don't want to get very specific, but uh, because I, you know, I need to hear a little bit more. But sleep is a very complicated issue. It's not like um, constipation when I think everybody has the same constipation or maybe different degrees. Uh, sleep is really um, 
multifaceted and you need to take a very thorough history and very careful uh, and medication list to know what is causing it. For example, some people are anxious and they need to reduce stress before they go to sleep. For others, the sleep problem is actually dopamine deficiency because it's the longest period of time that they didn't take dopamine. And one of my patients that uh, was very thankful for a telemedicine visit was the one that I told her, I think you don't sleep because you didn't take cinnamon late enough. And she started taking cinnamon before bed and her sleep is better. In contrast, people who have very vivid dreams, stopping cinnamon or stopping the mantadine at night is actually the way to go. Um, people who act out their dreams have room sleep behavior disorder. Clonazepam is the only drug that has some data that it works. So there isn't one answer for all sleep issues. You need to sit carefully with your doctor, go over all the factors, what other drugs you take. Uh, some people that take uh, drugs for blood pressure, it can cause um, need to go to the bathroom at night. So there's lots of things need to be, it's not a one uh, question answers all. Uh, so Matt was asking me, do you think, do you believe that there are more genes at work in PD than locked to a GBA, pink one, et cetera? So absolutely. The genes in Parkinson's can be divided to genes that if you have them, your risk is very high or moderately high. There are more genes like that for sure. We know that because we have families with high prevalence of Parkinson's that still are negative to our panel. Um, one of the families that participated in PD gene, uh, they were five siblings, four of them have PD, and they came back negative to the panel we tested. So of course, there's more genes than what we know. But we also know that small risk factors, so variants in the DNA, that don't increase your, gene, your risk significantly. They just increase it by 20%. 20% is not a lot. It means that if your risk without it is 1%, the risk with it is 1.2%. But if you had 100 of those combined, then it becomes a significant risk factor. And that is called the polygenic risk factor. Polygenic risks are now studied and very attractive in the, res in the research of depression, schizophrenia, bipolar disease, and there's a lot of data coming out of uh, Dr. Andy Singleton lab at the NIH. Now that your uh, group is by Zoom, if any of these specific topics interest you, I'm sure that more people would be able to come and talk to you about it, but uh, we are not done with PD genetics. GBA and LARC2 are interesting because we know their biology quite well, so I'm very hopeful that our understanding of the biology would lead to treatments a little bit before the other genes. The other question with those genes is, Will treatment that target GBN LARC2 be good only for people with GBN LARC2 or not? And the drug companies here are at a little bit of a, between the rock and the hard place, because on one hand, they want the drug to work for everyone. On the other hand, if it works for only a small group of people, they can get an orphan drug indication from the FDA. So I don't know where it will go, and it will all depend on the biology, whether it works or not. Um, uh, I was asked about Ray Dorsey's book, uh, linking uh, PD to chemicals and pesticides. So I am honored to say that I contributed to the book. I edited it, I didn't write it, the, the genetic chapter. Um, I got a copy home, so I know that it's out. And I think the pesticides are a risk factor. I think that the implications of it is just like the genes. It's not like if you have the gene, you have the disease. People, some people can work in agriculture and be exposed by 
being sprayed from airplanes and have nothing, and others can be just eating more pesticides or drinking well water and having an increased risk. I think pesticides is a major problem. Uh, there's a research at Columbia that um, follows uh, kids from neonatal, neonate stage where they were exposed to pesticides no longer allowed in the United States. And uh, the researcher is Virginia Dow, Virginia Rao. And now that um, Dow is a slip of a tongue because they're the bad company here. Anyways, Virginia Rao. And uh, now that those kids reached the age of 20, we started screening them for Parkinson's symptoms. So I believe in the pesticides. Uh, my, there's another question about what are my thoughts about CBD, and then I see that it's 7.58, so I think I'll take that as the last question because you probably want to talk among yourselves, and not me talking all the time. Um, what are my thoughts about CBD? My thoughts are that um, for sure, if you have pain that requires opiates, I think marijuana is better. Opiates cause constipation, opiates have side effects, marijuana is better. CBD, um, it's very hard to study because Federally, it's impossible to do a clinical trial. I would have loved to do one. So the anecdotal data that I have from CBD is that it helps sleep. It can also, and it helps anxiety. So people that have anxiety when they're into the off stage, CBD can help them a lot. And my experience with CBD so far was that it was relatively benign. So not a lot of people that tried CBD stopped it. Some people swear by it and say that they cannot sleep without it. I don't have someone that had a significant side effect with it. So I would say yes. So. Um, Thank you so much. I'll stop here because otherwise, uh, like, you know, I, but um, I, I'm going to stay a few more minutes. So if people want to chat, uh, to send me a uh, uh, um, personal chats, I'll try to answer those. I'll um, stop sharing my screen so, I, so then the questions will not be personal, they, they can be personal again. Um, uh, so please feel free to, um, please feel free to uh, uh, send me a message and um, uh, I, I will keep taking answers and I'll answer you in the Zoom chat. Yeah. Royce, thank you so, so much. Oh my God, does anybody have any questions before Roy gets back to his family? I'm gonna answer a few questions by Zoom in the Zoom huh? chat. First of all, I'm gonna let you chat among yourself and do uh, and, and uh, be able to mingle as much as Zoom allows you. Jeff wants to know if you're accepting new patients. Yes, I am. Okay. We're also a little bit, uh, we have a major loss to our group. Stan Fun is retiring. So I'm taking a little bit of uh, 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 some of his patients to help uh, the burden, but we also hired an amazing new faculty. Kim Quay, that maybe in the next, uh, that she's also going to specialize in BBS. So uh, in the next visits, uh, we'll bring her in so you can hear from her as well if you're interested. Okay. One more thing to let you know is that we do have a clinical research project for telemedicine physical therapy with a group of physical from Colombia. Uh, you can uh, let one of my research assistants. Uh, Thank you, though. I'd love to hear that when I'm trying to watch the show. It's terrific. Thanks. I'm sorry. Thank you, everyone. I'm going to mute myself and answer the Zoom questions. You're all day long. No, no, I didn't know. It was Thank, be much. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, Hello. hi, everybody. Oh, my God. Wasn't that wonderful? I taped it. So, I'm going to stop the recording. Another room.